I went back to thank the ER docs and rescue guys a year after my accident. And the ER doc just looked at me as like, oh yeah, I remember you. Yeah, your, your trachea was like way over the way over by your ear. He kind of like, he's like, yeah, you usually don't see that on live people. I think another good analogy for what alpinism is, is that the, like the decathlon of climbing. Oh, Because you have to like the, a decathlete, you have to be good at everything, but you're not the best at any of those one things. Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. My guest today is Steve House. For 21 years, Steve was a professional climber, with his most famous ascent being the RuPaul face of Nanga Parbat in 2005, which earned him the acclaimed Piole d'Or, or in English, the Golden Ice Axe. He has compiled an impressive list of first ascents and new routes in Alaska, the Canadian Rockies, the Alps, and the Himalayas. Reinhold Messner has called him the best high-altitude climber in the world. During Steve's climbing career, he wrote his memoir of adventures in his book, Beyond the Mountain. And since retiring from professional climbing, Steve has co-authored Training for the New Alpinism and Training for the Uphill Athlete, as well as becoming a co-founder of the coaching company Uphill Athlete. I hope you enjoy this interview with a world-class climber, coach, and author. Steve House, thank you so much for being on the CoachCast today. Hey, thanks, Dirk. It's great to great to be here and get to hang out and catch up. Yeah, you know, this is I'm kind of I'm definitely like a big fan, starstruck moment for me. Absolutely, uh, I just listened to your record. I think you were just interviewed by uh, Alex Honnold a little while back, and so yeah. got some great great insights from that interview. And um, you know there's so much that I want to go through and the, I'm glad we're having this interview because I keep coming up with more and more questions for you. <laughs> so let's get it started. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, you're certainly world-class, you know, climber set all kinds of speed records, but I want to know how did you first fall in love with climbing? What got you into climbing in the first place back in whatever decade it was? You know, I think I just fell in love with the mountains and climbing just became a preferred vehicle for that. And I grew up in the northeastern part of Oregon, small mountain ranges like the Elkhorns and the the Wallawas and so on. But uh, it was enough to get get me hooked. And I spent a lot of time outside with my family. We did a lot of ton of backpacking. I was super active in scouts. Uh, my dad had done mountaineering and climbing. Uh, when he was stationed in in the army in Germany in the late sixties, mid sixties, late sixties, that's how he kind of got exposed to it. He introduced me, and it you know it was just just sort of part of life, and it was a great part. So then I know you ended up in Slovenia, and that's maybe where you I think you may have gotten more serious about climbing. But how did you? Yeah. You know, what age were you, and why Slovenia? Yeah, I took a did a, a one year exchange as a student the year between high school and college, 
And so I had, uh, it was 1988, 89. I was just turned 18 years old when I went there. And the climbing piece was really a little bit of an accident. I had, I applied to this program and the way this program that I was in worked, American Field Service AFS, is that you did this whole interview process and so on. And then you got a, you got a placement and it was either take it or leave it. And you had no say in where you got to go. So I was offered this placement with a family in Yugoslavia. So remember it's 1988, you know, definitely pre-internet, <laughs> you know, I pull out this, like we are the world national geographic book. And there's like one, you know, there's like two pages about, Yugoslavia, you know, this, and I read some stuff about it. And it's like, whoa, this place sounds wild. Like it's, you know, a Slavic country. It's on the Adriatic Sea. Um, people speak Slavic. They use, there's like seven different languages in the country. It's just like, wow, this sounds really intimidating and scary, but also really interesting. And you know, I, I think it was one of the best decisions I, of my life that I, I did that because I really did a lot of growing up and a lot of self-discovery during that year. And I'm really fortunate, too, because of the time it was like I didn't have access to like other English speakers, for example. Right. So I was just plopped down in Slovenia in 1988 where I didn't have very I had a few people I could converse with in my language. Wow. I had no textbook. I had no instructor. So I was supposed to go to school. So I would sit there in class and I would draw pictures on my notepad and my classmates would label them. And I would, from those labels, memorize words in wow. the Slovene language. And, you know, by Christmas, I could have basic conversations. And by the end of the year, I was like, you know, a lot, but I, I really learned to speak Slovenian, like at the bar, drinking beer, trying to yeah. talk to girls, <laughs> that kind you of stuff. You couldn't write, you couldn't write at all, but you could, uh, speak I it. couldn't, yeah, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't write like the words and I can spell the words because I, that's how I, I'm a visual learner and that's how I yeah. studied, but I can't write sentences. Like I can't write grammatically correct sentences, but I can I can speak them. And if I do try to write, I just have to like basically sit there and talk out loud to myself, but it's been a lifelong connection. I still have friends in Slovenia. I was in Slovenia a couple of weeks ago. Um, my wife and kids and I live in Austria now and we're just a couple of hours. It's about actually about 90 minutes, hundred minutes to the Slovenian border from here at our house. Wow. So it's been a lifelong, uh, a lifelong connection with that country and a bunch of friends there. And it's been great. Yeah. I, I I definitely kind of know a bit of what you went through. When I was 19, I got a one-way ticket to Belgium to pursue sport, cycling, right. and lived with a French family, French-speaking family, and just had to like figure it out. But there is a cycling culture in right. Belgium. And you know, if you were to have landed in Belgium or Holland, I mean, it sounds like it was luck of the draw. They they it was, take yeah. So your life may have ended up differently if you didn't go to Slovenia. And why? Absolutely. So talk to me about that culture. So you some, you know, they're climbing yeah, I mean, in Slovenia, right? That's also the interesting thing. Like I didn't expect to go climbing at all, but I just was looking, yeah. I was just, my family was trying to help me find a community and find friends. Yeah. And they were like, you know, what do you do? And I was like, well, we go skiing and climbing. And they're like, oh, you want to go check out the climbing club? Yeah, that sounds great. 
like boom from day one like that was my those were my people so how was that culture different than where you had been as a high schooler you know the climbing culture in high school versus climbing culture in slovenia are they the same or no i have a feeling it's probably not so different between the cycling culture for you as a youth in colorado and the cycling culture in belgium like it's yeah, we have climbing in the States, but we don't have culture that's built around it. Like it's, right. it, it's, it, it is, I think that's the best descriptor for it. It is a culture. It, it is like a legitimate culture with a, with a long history, with stories, with traditions, with, with groups of people that are friends that go on epic adventures together and have epic experiences together and come back and talk about it and People, people literally live and die in these in these communities of, of people, and it's um, it's it's tight. Like it's 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 like a tr- it's a little bit like belonging to a really big tribe, right? Yeah, and you know every town has the church, and what's across the street from the church, like yeah. in Chamonix? Yeah, that's the that's the w- w- a great way to say it. Like in if you go to Chamonix, the, the building across from the Catholic Church is the Mountain Guide Office. If you go to Zermatt, what's across from the Catholic Church? The Mountain Guide Office. Right. You go to Cormier in the Italian side of Mont Blanc, same thing. Mountain Guide Office, Catholic Church. Like These were the esteemed institutions right. of, of these mountain towns. Same here in Austria. If you go to the Kals, the town at the base of the highest mountain in Austria, same thing, church mountain guide office. And, and the guides that are from that village now, they consider themselves part of a tradition that's like 200 years old. And yeah. they are. You know? they're, I can't, they're, I can't they're tell you the where home. the mountain guide office is in Boulder. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably it's a strip mall somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Just go to Chautauqua Park and meet the climbers mm. there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so tell me about, um, you know, is it, there's more of a system you know, certification, you kind of learn how to be a proper climber, you know, in Slovenia. And did this lead then into kind of this new alpinism phase and how, how you kind of develop this or, and even describe for us, like, what is new alpinism? And, and I'm saying that because you're co-author of a book training for the new alpinism. Um, yeah. and you kind of led this, uh, you were kind of pioneer in this style of climbing. So tell us about that. Yeah. So in Slovenia, there was and still is a system through which that supported through the local chapters of the Alpine Association, the Mountain Club, that and each each club kind of runs their own alpinist training. And this was particularly important back in the day in Yugoslavia because all the expeditions were state funded. And so the qualification to go on an expedition was to get your alpinist certificate. And so if you wanted to go climb and if you wanted to go out of the country and go climbing in somewhere other part of the world, whether that was Patagonia or Alaska or the Himalaya, you had to go through this process, become an alpinist, and then you would start to automatically basically get invited on these trips that were being organized kind of by the more senior um, members of the club, like basically the, the old guys and gals would, you know, kind of, it, it was a really great system actually, because there was sort of this really 
really excellent mentorship built in and progression, right? So you would come up through this sort of lessons and it would take a typically take a couple of years and you would have to do a bunch of routes and there would be on and on. Um, and then you might get invited on these trips, but then when you were going on these trips, the trips were organized so that there were, there were it wasn't just whoever wanted to go. They would sort of select the team with an eye towards, okay, we need like some really experienced guys and we need some women and we need some, we need some kind of beginner expedition climbers that will get along with these other people and there'll be good workhorses, you know, who, what personalities are going to fit. Like this kind of thought would go into, and then they'd say, okay, you eight people, um, you know, that wanted to go on this mountain. Yeah, you can go, here's your tickets. This is when you're, you know, kind of a thing. And it would all be organized by like a, there'd be an expedition leader. This would be a senior, you know, usually a, you know, 50, 60 year old guy that had been doing this for a long time. So also you could kind of progress through this system, right? You'd start as one of the young climbers, but then maybe 10, 15, 20 years later, you're like one of the, one of the strongest climbers and taking on that role. And then as you age out of that, you may become one of these leaders that is in organizing expeditions. And so there was always a role. Everyone had a role. Um, and I think that that was, that was really cool. And as a young climber, it was really great to, for me to have access to both these hotshot guys that were and gals that were in their thirties, but also these kind of like wizened old men and women who had been around the block 50 times and had all these stories. And, you know, I would just sit there, like, I would just like sit there on at their feet, just listening to all these stories, you know, it was yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. That, and that again, reminds me of Belgium, you know, it's like you're part of a club and you progress from junior U23, you know, up to elite, hopefully pro, hopefully tour de France, whatever. But then whenever your career ends, even throughout your career, you're giving back to the club. You have an extra pair of wheels, give back, you know, a junior can right. use them. And so that's very much at the heart of this culture that's, you know, throughout Europe, no matter what your passion is, you know, it's like you're giving back to the community, back to the club. And I really, really know what you're talking about. And I experienced that, you know, as a cyclist, which I, you know, I wish we had more of that in the States, you know, where you're it's kind of like your entire career as part of a club. They nurtured you, they helped create you, and now you're giving back to that mm -hmm. club. So I'd love to see more of that, you know, in the States. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really nice way, way to do things. I think in the States, we're just so mobile, you know, it's, it almost requires that you sort of grow up and live and, you know, lived old age hopefully in the same area in the same club because they're geographic right yeah yeah that's definitely. a little bit tricky for us but well, it's um, generational 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 it's generational it fully is generational yeah 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 so that's that kind of i think um what that really did for me as it mostly i would say i became I got a lot of experience at a type of climbing that is really hard to get a lot of experience with if you're a North American climber. And in North America climbing, like we kind of have like good technical climbing. Like, of course, we can think of climbing El Capitan or something like that. And then we have Mount Rainier. 
but we don't have a lot of this what's halfway in between El Capitan and Mount Rainier. But in the Alps, it's full of things that are halfway between Mount Rainier and El Cap. So, and this is what most alpine climbing, what most technical mountaineering is. It's not walk-ups, quote unquote, and it's not like, you know, really hard technical rock climbing that you need rock climbing shoes and chalk and perfect conditions and dry cracks, et cetera, et cetera, for. So this, when I came back from this year and I saw, came back to the mountains of North America and started going to Canada or not too long after that, Alaska, I kind of knew how to do the, that. And that's something that I think for most North American climbers is hard, is difficult when they're young to learn how to do. Because when you're young, obviously you don't have money to travel and so on. So you're kind of just doing the things in your backyard and there's the steep stuff and the walking stuff and there's nothing in between. And so right. that kind of gave me this real confidence that when I got to the, these sort of this kind of terrain that I most enjoy, uh, that I, that I already had a lot of experience with it. It also brings a whole new element of fitness that you need. You know, it, it's, yeah. it, it's not, you know, hanging on the wall, right. And the hard tech, I mean, it's all hard technical, but you know, these long kind of expeditions, these long days that, you know, and so it's really, you start to be like, wow, can I even do that given my fitness? Whereas I feel like more, you know, most American climbers, you know, they focus on skills. It's yeah. not so much about fitness. And so right. you, you then had that experience and which led into, I mean, what you set a, a speed record up RuPaul face, Nanga Parbat, some new, new routes, uh, you know, in, in Alaska, um, and then you won the PLA door with Vince Anderson. So tell us about yeah. that prize and why you won it and the kind of training it took to, to, to earn that. Yeah. I think that you, to summarize sort of the physical part of it is that, you know, you're doing these super long days. And what we started to do in Alaska was that we would, we realized people, not just me, but a group of people realized in the early nineties that because it doesn't get dark in the summertime in Alaska, that you could climb for 36 hours or 48 hours if you had the fitness to do it. And so there's, you're trying to combine this aerobic, you know, giant aerobic fitness to be able to keep moving uphill on a mountain, on a steep mountainside, tech, hopefully with some technical climbing that's also interspersed because that's just the way mountains are with relatively short but still very hard sections so you'd have long sections that were somewhat moderate but then you have sections that might take a couple of hours to go you know say 50 meters so it's a it's a hard thing metabolically to kind of prepare for because you're kind of it's on the two ends of the spectrum thankfully not at the same time but still you have to be able to put in that 14 hours then be fresh when you get to the the bottom of that pitch that takes you two hours and be able to like really do a hard intensive effort for a couple of hours. And then, and then you have like take a break and then you have to go for another long chunk. So it's, it's a hard mix of, of things. And so this was the kind of stuff that I was starting to put together. And if I can back up from the PLA door a little bit, I think yeah. that there, for me, there was kind of a, um, I spent most of the 1990s climbing in Alaska and the Canadian Rockies because that's what I could afford to do. And then 
in the early 2000s, I kind of got to a point where I was, you know, rough. I was in my late 20s, 30, and was kind of this. This sounds. Um, how do I say this? I don't. This is not. I'm not trying to sound like egotistical, but I was sort of felt like I was running out of hard objectives to do in North America, and so I was like, okay, I, I have like if I want to take my climbing to the next level and see if I can become better at this, I have to go to the big mountains in in the Himalaya. And and when I did that, I immediately I started climbing with through my Slovenian connections. Actually, I started climbing with people in the Himalaya that were already like several steps ahead of me. And that was a really is, is like, I went from a small pond to a big pond, <laughs> you know, in terms of like yeah. the people around me and their sport. abilities and their right. fitness and stuff. And I was like, Oh my God, these like, I'm not on this level. Like, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's like, how do I get to this level? And that's around the time I started working with Scott Johnston, who uh, became very influential for me and became my coach for a long time. And we ended up writing some books together. And the, the process that, um, and it's funny that when Scott tells the story, he's like, yes, you know, like Steve's just total, like athletically, he's a completely average human being. He has like no genetic gifts. Like, and he's, you know, and people always laugh, you know, it's like, oh, how could that be? He did all these amazing things. It's like, well, no, we just, we took, you know, conventional endurance training methodologies and applied it to an unconventional sport. And, yeah. and he had the discipline and, you know, so on to, to follow through over years so that he could build up over years to, to get this really elite level fitness uh, the way a professional endurance athlete would do. And so that was really what, what I think was the key to my recipe for success that, and just good old fashioned tenacity in the sense of just, you know, I, I I decided, yeah, I'm going to go to the Himalaya twice a year, every year. And some expeditions are going to be bad and some expeditions are going to be good. And this is what I'm going to do for the next 10 years. And I'm going to see how much and I had some specific goals. Um, and I structured them in a, a little bit the way, you know, on a 10 year plan, I'd had my, my A goals and B goals and C goals, but wow. still I, I had some uh, structure to that and I got a good ways through my goals. And the Nanga Parbat was certainly one of those. It's really famous in mountaineering circles because it's the biggest mountain wall in the world. It's the most vertical relief of any place on earth. So it's about like you know, 6,000. Yeah, the, t- the top of the mountain is 26,660 feet. It's the ninth highest mountain in the world. And the, uh, the most honest measurement is it's about 14,500 vertical feet from the top of the glacier, what's called the, the highest crevasse on the glacier called the Bergstrand to the summit is 14,500 feet. Wow. Some people may, would, if you measure from the valley or from the river, I mean, you can, you can make it be a bit more, but I think, you know, if there's cows grazing, I don't think you can count that as part of the mountain. So you, you weren't the first to do it, but you set a, a speed record. Is that right? With Vince? Well, so yeah, so the root ball, the the face itself had been climbed the first time in 1970 by Reinhold Mesner and his brother Gunter in a pretty infamous expedition during which his brother Gunter died on the descent. And at that time, Reinhold was 25 years old. So it was his first 8,000 meter peak. 
and he lost all his toes or not all, but he, I think he lost six of his toes on the, on that. And, you know, historic epic, like it, wow. it changed Reinhold's life. Like it's, he considers it, he calls it his key mountain. Um, so, uh, that was, that was 1970, 1970, when they did that. And then the mountain had, the Rupal face had, that face had not been climbed since. And Vince and I climbed it in 2005, 35 years later. And they did it in an expedition sort of semi-expedition style where they had fixed ropes and fixed camps. And then Reinhold and Gunther went to the summit and then down the other side because they couldn't come back down the way they'd come. They climbed. And then, um, yeah, so I went in 2004 with another friend of mine from Boulder, uh, Bruce Miller, and Bruce and I attempted it. And we got quite high on the mountain, but uh, turned back after about five days of climbing. And then Vince and I went back in 2005 and managed to do the whole thing in one push. And that's what we we climbed it in uh, six days to the top, and then it took us two more days to come down. Wow. And for this, we won the Pile d'Or, which is sort of the highest honor in mountaineering. And that's in this, again, new alpinism. What is What does that mean? New alpinism means that, I mean, first of all, let's just take the word alpinism. Alpinism refers to, comes from the French word for mountaineering, l'alpinisme. Um, Alp, obviously, Alps. And... Um, Alpinism in the English vernacular refers to technical climbing in the mountains. So climbing Mount Rainier by the normal route, say the Disappointment Cleaver, the Emmons Glacier, is mountaineering in the English language. It's not alpinism. Climbing Denali by the standard route, which is the West Buttress route that most people climb, that's that's considered mountaineering, but climbing the Cassine Ridge or the Slovak Direct or a, a really technical route where you have to swing both ice axes and you're front pointing on your ice axe, on your crampons and you're, you're doing belayed climbing Got it. in interspersed with sections. There's always sections of what I would call mountaineering. And that's kind of what alpinism refers to. So for me, alpinism is actually the, the, the ultimate of climbing because it blends everything. It blends ice climbing, it blends rock climbing, it blends high altitude, it blends mixed climbing. You have to know the weather. You have to you have to know everything there is to know about climbing to be a good alpinist. So it's it's really the ultimate test for an all arounder. There's people who are really great rock climbers and there's people who are really great mountaineers, but I think another good analogy for what alpinism is, is that the, like the decathlon of climbing. Oh, because you have to like the, a decathlete, you have to be good at everything, but you're not the best at any of those one things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're not the best pole vaulter. You're not the best javelin. You can't run the fastest 1500 or the fastest 100, but you're, you're pretty good at all those things. Yeah. Okay. So then you, you were working with Scott Johnston to prepare for these bigger objectives what 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 was the biggest change you know that he brought to your preparations was the the biggest change that scott brought to my physical training was really just the whole concept of structure and 
correct periodization. Nothing, nothing revolutionary, nothing fancy. And then, you know, I think it's just building a big aerobic base because, you know, in my sport, having a huge aerobic base so that when you arrive at the technical part, you're, you're fresh and not fatigued yep. is golden. And of course, you know, like the decathlete, you know, that you have to sort of train the, the hard technical part too. You have to be good, a little bit good at everything. And that's what makes training for these kinds of things actually kind of interesting from, especially when you put on the, the coach goggles, right? Is you have to try to figure out like, okay, how much of this do I do? And then where do I layer in that? And what about upper body strength? And where, what about the finger strength? And, you know, can we, you know, how do you integrate? Cause there's, you know, there's not enough hours in the week in a way to, to execute and recover from all the training for all the different things you need to do. So you have to be really, um, uh, I think, measured and and conscious of how how you do it and you have to really listen as an athlete you have to really listen to your body that's the other thing i i I learned i i had i had some blow-ups you know i got sick and did all the things that i made all the mistakes you know (laughs) (laughs) well what's what also amazes me is that you know you're not always training folks for a podium yes you are training folks to podium in ultra running or whatever it might be or schema racing um, but also a lot of your clients are about staying alive, you know, and fast is mm-hmm. safe, right? Yeah. And there's no coming back down the same route. You must summit. Um, so that's a different level of coaching when you're talking about life and death. And that that that's amazing. You know, when I think about that, I think about your accident on what, what in Can- Mount Temple. And, you know, the, tell me about that incident and how that maybe, you know, sounds like that was a major turning point in your career path. Absolutely was, you know, I had, I was doing a, it was a training climb that I was doing with a friend in the Canadian Rockies on Mount Temple, which is right across from the Lake Louise ski area. And I was climbing, I was leading a pitch on the second day I'm not sure exactly what happened. Everything was fine. I wasn't particularly stressed. I, I, I assume a foothold broke. I don't remember. I fell uh, a really long ways, about 80 feet. Some of the gear pulled out and I got pretty badly injured. Hemonumothorax, numerous internal injuries, uh, broken broken pelvis, lots of rib, fractured ribs. Um, and a couple of hours Later, I got uh, slung off in a rescue helicopter by Parks Canada, thankfully. I went back to thank the ER docs and rescue guys a year after my accident. And the ER doc just looked at me and was like, oh, yeah, I remember you. Yeah, your, your trachea was like way over the way over by your ear. He kind of like, he's like, yeah, yeah, you usually don't see that on live people. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my <laughs> I was gosh. like, huh, okay. <laughs> Wow, you, um, oh my gosh thanks oh my gosh <laughs> so yeah i was it was uh down to the wire i would I, I would say and you know i i had a pretty long convalescence a couple things hap- came out of that one is that i remember having a call or with scott and he was coaching some athletes at some world cup ski races in norway and cross-country ski races in norway which is where he did most of his coaching in that sport. And 
he uh, and I said, you know, Scott, we ought to write down all the stuff we've been doing for my training these last nine years. And he's like, yeah, 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 that'd be a good idea. I'm like, no, no, seriously. Like I need something to do. Like I, I'm, I'm like sitting, I can't like do anything. Like I need something to do. And yeah. he was like, okay, yeah. So we, we started what is now this, this book you referenced earlier training for the new alpinism. And we thought it was going to be a hundred pages. We'd run off a few copies at Kinko's and give them away to our friends, but we ended up finding a great publisher in Patagonia books division and uh, they've they published they published my autobiography called Beyond the Mountain, which came out. When did that come out? Two thousand eight. It came out. It was published, and then um, Training for the New Alpinism must have been two thousand fifteen. Training for the Uphill Athlete came out in two thousand eighteen. The years run together now. Yeah. So yeah. So all of these books have been published by Patagonia, which has been an incredible partnership. I love Beyond the Mountain. Uh, I, I could spend a couple hours talking to you about those experiences. And I mean, you faced death falling into a crevasse near Chamonix and Aguil Drew, the Drew, right? Is that Drew? Right? Yeah. Yeah. That, and you, that real sharp spire, rock spire you can see above Chamonix. Yeah. yeah and I was on that tram, the Grand Monte in April. But yep. anyways, the point being, you, you faced death, you had a broken leg, you got yourself out of there and just amazing stories. So I highly recommend reading that book just because of all the amazing uh, adventures that you write about. But back to the other training books, how would you describe the differences between, you know, if someone was interested in buying one first and go ahead and buy both. Yeah. What, but what, what's the differences between new alpinism and training for the uphill athlete? So new alpinism is, is aimed at climbers, alpinists, because that's what I did. So that was the, my specialty. So it was, and training for the uphill athlete kind of came about because after training for the new alpinism, we, it, we inadvertently ended up in, in a coaching business, <laughs> which we, which we named uphill athlete. So what happened was people started asking us, emailing us with all these questions. And we were always, Scott and I were always responding to the same questions. We're like, Oh, we need a forum on the internet so we can just like, post these up there and then and then just send people links rather than write all this stuff out all the time you know we had all the draft emails like saved um <laughs> so we started with a sort of a forum that we monitored and then people started asking us for training plans a few people started asking us for coaching and what we realized was that most of the interest was around people that wanted to just train for some kind of mountain aerobic sport so might be ski touring, might be like going and doing the Haute route. Maybe they wanted to climb Mount Rainier. Maybe they wanted to climb Denali. Maybe they wanted to climb Everest. So um, there weren't that many alpinists, to be honest. There were, they were mostly, I would say they were mostly uh, people from men and women from all walks of life, mountain runners, all kinds of all kinds of self-propelled sports. I mean, we've had all kinds of, we've had, we've had stand-up paddleboarders, we've had all kinds of everything, 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 every, every self-propelled, you know, human propelled sport. We've, we've had somebody come through. And so training for the uphill athlete, we felt like that book became a necessity for a couple of reasons. One is we wanted to write something that was more specific to mountain runners and ski mountaineers. And two, in the intervening years between we just done so much communicating and so much teaching 
about how to train for endurance sport that we realized that our methodologies of teaching, our pedagogy had gotten so, become so much better. We'd become much better instructors and we had better models. We'd, we'd stumbled upon better explanations just, just through pure trial and error and doing it day in and day out. And we thought, you know, this, so actually I pretty much always recommend people buy training for the uphill athlete because the physiology section is just better. It's easier to understand. It's the difference of five years of, it's the difference between five years of working together and repeatedly explaining and teaching these things again and again, and you yeah. just get better at it. Well, what I love about it is seeing training through different eyes, through a, a different sport. And I think as coaches, we shouldn't just be myopic and only looking at training through your one sport, you know, and triathlon coaches can learn from running coaches, cycling, swimming, but as well, you know, even here, you know, alpine yeah. climbing. Um, and so that foundation is the same amongst all of them, but yet how do we go about it? A recovery um, techniques, um, different types of workouts, you know? So I'd love to get into some, some of your methodologies, but more about the foundation of what is uphill athlete training, you know, intensity versus foundation and aerobic and, you know, what do you got? What was kind of like a couple beliefs that you guys really, really preach? Yeah, I think, um, well, let's keep in mind our audience. We're not generally talking to or working with elite level athletes, right? We're not, we're not. Julian Jornet is a. Well, we do work with, we do work with a few for sure, like <laughs> or David Gutler, or, I mean, we definitely have like, I don't know, you know, Luke Nelson, Mike Foot, like I mean, Luke was fifth in Hard Rock last week. One of our coaches, Nikki, uh, oh, Nikki was La Rochelle. La Rochelle, she was. Uh, she was. I haven't talked to her yet because I just heard from one of our other coaches. She placed fifth yesterday in a hundred miler in Colorado. Yes, yes, yes. So, and she's one of our coaches. So we just have, um, we for sure have elite level folks, but. 80 or 90 or 95% even of our folks there, they're high level recreational athletes. And so a lot of what we're bringing is fundamentals, you know, I mean, and this is, this is where I think what you said about learning from different sports, because it's not just, I think we all share the same common understanding of how physiology works and so forth. But the, the part that where we can really benefit each other is the inspiration part. Like mm. it's, it's fun to see how people coach different athletes in different ways, because, you know, there's a part, there's a certain part of coaching that is just voodoo, right? Like it's just, it's just a connection a coach has with his athlete and yeah. you're, you're, you're thinking about how you can, you know, build, increase a certain capacity in something a certain way while working around an old injury of X or whatever it is. And you come up with these, it's creative it's fun and it's actually like really inspiring for me to listen to other coaches talk about how they solve problems. And, yeah. and that's the interesting thing, right? To me is solving the problem. I, I mean, for me, the problem could ultimately kind of be anything, but if we have a, a good problem it's that to solve, then it's fun. A good problem to solve that we can solve, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's, I think in terms of our core, things that we are talking about a lot. I mean, I think we talk probably about a lot about the same things 
that most endurance coaches talk about. We talk about a big aerobic base. We talk about a good uh, base of strength, you know, for all the typical reasons, whether it's injury prevention or whatever. We, we all our sports are like one legged, you know, body weight sports, you know, running, mountaineering, your, your ski mountaineering, your one leg at a time up, up going uphill. So that kind of that whole movement chain needs to be strong and bulletproof. And then the other big piece of it, I think that, that we work with a lot is, is muscular endurance work. You know, the, the, with mountaineers, we use a lot of weighted carries once they have the, once they have, of course, once they have a sufficient aerobic base to support this kind of work, you know, they're, they're, we, we start them off with, you know, maybe 25, 20, 30, maybe pounds for bigger people of of water typically we have them you know do sort of weighted intervals zone three kind of you know so this kind of this kind of basic um stuff it's actually nothing particularly fancy but you know as we all know this the basics work and and the basics for a reason and um yeah we have really good success with with that stuff yeah i i definitely followed you guys full-heartedly for a couple of years and I was really competing hard in ski mountaineering. And I think one thing that made a difference with me was the muscular endurance and actually mm-hmm. in the weight room, I'd never, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I'd always thought of the weight room as like, I mean, yeah. yeah, like the low rep, you know, type stuff. But here we are like, oh my Lord, I'm doing two exercises and it's going to take me one hour to do these two exercises. And I have maximum of like 15 second rest between these sets. So, you know, that's, that's a little bit of a hallmark for you guys as well. And I, that, sure. that made a great difference for my, and I was training for ski mount, uh, mountaineering. Yeah. Yeah. So we, with the, with the, with the ME, you know, I mean, a lot of people can't get out and go and uphill, like hike, like fine. It's like, it's tricky to do it outside. Actually, you have to find just the right slope and you have to be able to have good footing and can't have snow on it. You know, like all the, all the variables. Um, so we have devised some, some gym based methodologies. That, that also some folks live in New York city that you might, that you coach, you know, I mean, yeah, sometimes we do it in like stairwells and high rise exactly. buildings. Like, I mean, talk about mind numbing. I don't know how these people find motivation. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and I mean, tell us some more about your, your community and how folks can reach out and find you. And I know you have great forums and that's really open community. So I really appreciate that. Um, tell us more about your online community. Yeah, I think that the, because we started with books, Uphill Athlete has always been sort of an education first platform. And that's actually why we started the website. And we just, we just, it's the same reason we wrote the books. Like we, we really just wanted to get good, solid, conventional endurance training practices and understanding of those practices into people's hands. So they could, they could navigate the, the, the somewhat sometimes confusing maze of, of fitness in, in our country to sort of just figure out how to you know, prepare for their long days in the mountains doing whatever it is they love to do. And so our forums are, are massively popular. We have a forum uh, for general training questions and we have a forum by each sport. 
um, all the coaches kind of check through, rotate through, but anymore, like we have these superstar members that have just become such sort of, uh, students of all of this that we don't really have to really monitor that much anymore. Like it's kind of become this self-fulfilling thing where we just have the super fans that hang out, check in there a couple times a week and answer questions. And, um, we, uh, you know, we have layered a business on top of that as well. We sell training plans. We have training groups. We have women specific training groups and sports specific training groups. And then we have, we have coaching. Yeah. No, well, you've been a pioneer in many different ways throughout your, your life. And now there's a whole nother area of pioneering. This is the one I want to end on this note. This is, a. The Boulder Daily Camera. So if you're watching on YouTube, this was last week on uh, Wednesday. And it's so funny. The title is What Climbers Can Learn from More Serious Athletes. And I, I think a lot of climbers are serious, but you get the point. And, and down here he says, despite our trademark f- fanaticism, few climbers train effectively. We go to the climbing gym to work out, but we really just do what we always do, climb. Athletes in other sports have detailed training regimes, often prescribed by something most of us don't have, coaches. These athletes plan performance peaks according to micro and macro cycles. They cross-train in the off-season. Hell, they have an off-season. All this is lost on 99% of climbers who, like me, would rather just go climb. Yeah, You're bucking the trend, and you did that uh, a couple uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, this is exactly the kind of sediment that prevails in the culture of climbing sports that Scott and I set out to change. And I think we've had a big impact in our, in our little world. And I, and I hope, you know, in the, in the broader world, because one of the things like with, you know, the, the uptick in the number of cyclists on the road every summer during the Tour de France, you know, yeah. climbing mountains is inspirational to people. And we're, we, we definitely get people that come in the door that are just like, you know, I'll never climb a mountain, but what you guys do is so cool. I just want to do what you guys are doing. I'm like, okay, here's what we do. You know, it's great. Yeah. And it's we, growing. We invite, we invite all, all comers, you know? Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate all the great content you put out. Awesome books. Um, I've, I've learned a lot from you guys and incorporated a lot of the, a lot of the different workouts into my program. So I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for being on uh, with me today in your evening time in Austria. Um, Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, yeah, welcome to anyone can reach out to me over at uphillathlete.com. Check out the blog, sign up for the newsletter. We've got about 380 free articles about training information that people can check out and read by organized by sport or search by interest. So lots of information there. Thanks, Dirk.